This is David Barsamian, producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. We produced ISIS through the barbarity of our latest invasion of Iraq in 2003 becomes more evident to me by the month. We created this monstrous deviation from humanity. I think they learned basically from the massacres we perpetrated, the systematic routine tortures we inflicted in Abu Ghraib, which, by the way, involved rape as well as humiliation, and the CIA's black senders. That's Robert Fisk, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Robert Fisk on chaos in the Middle East. The U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003 is one of the great crimes in modern history. No one has been held to account. Hundreds of thousands of Iraqis have died, many more wounded, and millions became refugees. Washington's insane action unleashed a cascade of disasters across the Middle East, from Syria to Libya, and sparked the rise of jihadi groups. But Western intervention in the region has a long history. One can mention the 1916 Sykes-Picot Agreement or the Balfour Declaration the following year, and right down to the inheritor of European imperialism, the United States. Any country that says no to Washington's diktats is threatened with obliteration, as the current occupant of the White House warned Iran. The empire's subjects at home, the American people, are largely kept in the dark about what their country is doing abroad. Our guest today is Robert Fisk, the renowned Middle East correspondent for The Independent. He's the winner of the Amnesty International UK Press Award and the Lannan Prize for Cultural Freedom. The Financial Times calls him one of the outstanding reporters of his generation. As a war correspondent, he is unrivaled. He spoke at the Bloor Street United Church in Toronto in November 2019. And now, Robert Fisk. One of the constant, most frustrating and repeated experiences in my years as a Middle East correspondent, 43 in all actually, are phone calls which are always the same. Whether I'm in Kerbala or Iraq, in Baghdad, whether I'm in Cairo or at Beirut Airport trying to beg my way onto a flight, my mobile phone will ring with this conversation. Is that Mr. Robert? Yes, this is Mr. Robert. Hi, this is Mohammed. Remember me? <laughs> that narrows it down to about 10,000 Mohammeds over 43 years, over several thousand square miles of land. So I said, can you just give me a hint which one? February 2011, Cairo, Tahrir Square. You were with a friend and he was called Mohammed too. And I've come to believe that Donald Trump has a similar experience. All these Arab people out there, they're all Mohammeds. And they live in this place that's eternally at war, blood-soaked sand. Goes on forever. And the Kurds, remember, didn't fight on D-Day. They weren't at Normandy. (laughs) 
I actually, when I heard that, my jaw literally dropped. I just went... Actually, the Kurds had quite a rough time in World War II. When you remember, the Axis powers briefly took over Baghdad and the Allies then invaded. But that's not Trump history, is it? I suppose I'd better admit from the start, I'm going to get this off my chest, and I'm going to be very restrained. I actually feel stronger than this. President Donald Trump is crackers. He's not just unworthy of the American presidency. He is a dangerous, unhinged man. And I repeat, this is a restrained version of what I think. I am mincing my words, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm holding back a bit. You know, in the same context, I get very angry when I sit in Beirut or Baghdad or Cairo and I watch the American news chains and I hear CNN, CNN's experts, of course, Pentagon correspondent, White House correspondent, State Department correspondent, talking about Trump's foreign policy. There is no foreign policy. He has none. It does not exist. You can go to um, a psychiatric hospital and you'll hear about the foreign policy. That's just as good. (laughs) Lebanese diplomats tell me that when they speak to the American embassy staffs in the Middle East, they are told by American diplomats that when they ring the State Department, no one picks up the phone. There's nobody there, you see. It's void. There is no foreign policy. Look at, look at, first of all, we have Trump saying, we're, going to, we're withdrawing our troops from Kurdistan. Then we're not. Then we are. And now we're told they're going to hang around the oil fields. And in the meantime, we're sending, or the Americans are sending, more troops to Saudi Arabia than were in Syria. But the Saudis have to pay for them because these American troops are going to be mercenaries, aren't they? You know, for the Arabs, there's a fairly obvious conclusion to all this. If you have a choice between a lunatic in the White House and a sane tyrant in the Kremlin, well, you choose Moscow, don't you? And that's what's happening. Putin, quite apart from his support for Assad, Putin can go to any Middle East Muslim capital, and therefore I'm including Iran, where the mullahs will line up to see him, Khamenei will see him. He's embraced by Mohammed bin Salman. Neither Trump nor Putin care anything about Jamal Khashoggi. He goes to Egypt and... President General Brigadier General Sisi takes him to a Verdi opera. He loves opera, I'm sure. Putin can go anywhere in the Middle East and be welcomed. Sisi can go anywhere and be feared. Not because he's frightening per se. You don't know. If you live in the Middle East as I do and watch the the speed of the disintegration of international governance, you realize what actually happens when you put a madman as the leader of the world's greatest and most powerful superpower. Interestingly enough, when Trump announced for the second time, or perhaps almost the third, that he was going to withdraw his soldiers from Syria, what was the reaction of the EU? Normally it would be a howl of rage that this terrible betrayal of the Kurds would happen. And the Kurds were born to be betrayed. They were betrayed by Henry Kissinger, by the Americans after the First World War, when they refused to take the mandate for Kurdistan and so on and so forth. But what did Macron say? He said, we will have to look after French interests. Within hours of the betrayal of the Kurds, individual European nations were looking to themselves, you see. French interests rather than international morality. We were told, of course, that the um, death 
of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, or Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, as Mr. Trump would have it, um, was a, a serious blow to ISIS, Daesh. And I wrote at the time, well, hold on a minute, that something else is going to happen. Very interestingly, and I did not see a mention of this in any Canadian newspaper, nor for that matter in any American newspaper which I saw, within a week, Daesh, ISIS, staged a mass attack on the biggest Malian army government base in the Grand Sahara in Mali. How many of you knew that? Uh, okay, two, three, four, five. You see, that's my point. They smashed their way, and this was a base built by French troops. This was built by the French military as a major communication base in the battle against Daesh. They smashed over the, the total army complement of garrison of 81 Malian soldiers. 46 were shot dead or executed, the rest ran away. That is the immediate Daesh reply. Yet nowhere have I seen in the West anything about this, with the exception, of course, of the French press. Here's Le Mans for a whole page. You didn't get that in the Globe and Mail or the National Post, did you? I wanted at first to read you, go through some of the worst Trump tweets, but you know what they are, and they're also intrinsically rather boring now. I have a friend in Beirut, actually Tarif al-Khalidi, a very uh, great scholar of Islam. He's actually, he wrote, he translated the latest English translation of the Quran, a great piece of work he did on it. And he admitted to me the other day that he, can't, he and his wife can't stand CNN and will not watch it. But now they have breakfast with CNN every morning because they must hear the tweets. But I want to suggest to you that tweets are not really new. You may remember that when Christians were being massacred by the Ottoman Empire in 1912 and before that, it was the Kaiser who said that the Balkans are not worth the bones of a single Prussian grenadier. But for me, the most profoundly terrible, unjust, disgraceful and hypocritical tweet was written not by Trump, but by Arthur Balfour just over 100 years ago when he gave Britain support for a Jewish homeland in Palestine. The Balfour Declaration is only one sentence long. It is a tweet. It fits into a Twitter. It destroyed an entire people, that one sentence, that Twitter, that tweet. Even Trump hasn't managed to do that yet. Let me just remind you exactly what that sentence says. His Majesty's government view with favour the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavours to facilitate the achievement of this object, it being clearly understood that nothing should be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities. You see, the point is, non-Jewish communities in Palestine, it was referring to the majority of people who were Muslims and Christians, Arabs. But it didn't call them that. It identified them negatively as what they were not, the non-Jewish community. Only the Jewish people had an identity, not the Arabs. And that has effectively been the foreign policy of the West towards the Arab-Israeli conflict ever since. That's why journalists don't talk about the wall. And those of you who have been to see the wall will realise it's higher and longer than the Berlin Wall. They call it the separation barrier. They are not Jewish colonies on thieved land. They are settlements. 
If you ever follow through New York Times reports of death in the West Bank and Israel, Israelis are always killed by Palestinians. Palestinians usually die in clashes. You see how we journalists desemanticize the war. We don't need tweets to do that. But the readers who don't understand or know about the Middle East or are not interested, their version is, well, these pesky Palestinians just go and use violence all the time. If this is really a dispute about a, a, a separation barrier, or a fence, as it's sometimes called, why on earth would they throw stones at anybody? So we negativize and make violent, generically, the Palestinian people through words. And then, of course, it's easy for an American president to defund the entire Palestinian refugee population and move the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And if 150 Palestinians die on day one of that move, wow, well, we can't blame Trump, can we? Because these generically violent Palestinians, they don't like Trump's policy. Well, that's their problem. You see how we lay the groundwork for prejudice. And we lay it in this way. This Alf the Balfour, the Balfour Declaration Twitter, was a handbook in one sentence for dispossession. We talk about Syria, not Trump's Syria, but the grim one that remains. That wars end very differently to our own expectations. This is something that was established long ago. Just because we won the Second World War did not mean that the Americans would win in Vietnam, nor that France would conquer its enemies in Algeria. Yet the moment we decide who are the good guys and who are the evil monsters whom we must destroy, we relapse again into our old mistakes because we hate, loathe, and demonize Saddam or Gaddafi or Bashar al-Assad. We are sure, we are absolutely convinced that they will be dethroned and that the blue skies of freedom will shine down upon their broken lands. This is childish, immature, infantile. My own feeling is that both in America and in Britain and in much of the Arab world, many of the most terrible problems are caused by a deteriorating system of education. I do believe that if we spent no money on helicopters, M1A1 Abrams tanks, Bradley fighting armored vehicles, but poured our billions into helping with, if they wanted, into helping the Arab nations encourage secular education. Tarif al-Haladi, whom I've just mentioned to you, he gave a lecture two years ago in Beirut, which was one of the bravest lectures I've ever heard on Islam. I'll tell you why I was ashamed even to appear at that lecture as a member of the audience. His title of his lecture was, Does Islam Need a Martin Luther? And his answer was yes. He said the Quran does not contain everything. You cannot read the Quran and say you know all. There is no Beethoven, there is no Karl Marx in the Quran. There were no policemen outside to guard him as he made these extraordinary remarks and immensely courageous and brave remarks. And he had only 36 people turn up to hear him. That's why I sat in this almost empty room and thought, my God, what's happening to the Middle East? Well, Saddam's demise brought upon Iraq the most unimaginable suffering. Ergo, Gaddafi's assassination beside the most famous sewer in Libya. As for Bashar al-Assad, far from being overthrown, he has emerged now as the biggest winner of the Syrian war, along, of course, with Vladimir Putin. 
Still we insist, by the way, that he must go. Still we intend to try Syrian war criminals, and rightly so. But the Syrian regime has emerged above the blood tide of war intact, alive, and with the most reliable superpower ally any Middle East state could have, the Kremlin. I despise that word that's become so popular in Canada too, called curate. Everyone seems to be curating scenarios, curating political conversations, or curating business portfolios. Curators live in museums and art galleries. But those who curated the story, the narrative of the Syrian war, got it wrong from the start. Bashar would go, remember, the Free Syrian Army, made up, we were told, of tens of thousands of Syrian army deserters and of very brave demonstrators of Daraya, Damascus, Homs. They would force the Assad family from power. And, of course, Western-style democracy would break out. Secularism, which is supposed to be a, a unique asset of the Ba'ath Party, but it's not, would become the basis of a new and liberal Arab state. We shall leave aside for now one of the real reasons for the West's support of the rebellion, to destroy Iran's only Arab ally. We didn't predict, of course, the arrival of al-Qaeda, now purified with the name of al-Nusra, nor did we imagine that the ISIS-Daesh nightmare would emerge like a genie from the eastern deserts. Nor did we understand, nor were we told, how these Islamic cults could consume the people's revolution in which we believed. Still today, I am only beginning to learn how Syria's... I keep doing this for quotation marks. You have to do this in the Middle East all the time. I do it for Palestine too, by the way. How Syria's moderate rebellion turned into the apocalyptic killing machine of the Islamic State. Some Islamist groups, not uh, all by any means, and it was not a simple transition, were there from the start. They were in Homs, I've discovered, as early as 2012. This does not mean that Syrian rebels were not brave or even democratically minded, but they were mightily exaggerated in the West. While David Cameron, another of our beloved prime ministers, while he was fantasizing about 70,000 free Syrian army moderates fighting the Assad regime, there were maybe 7,000 at the most, going down to about 700. The Syrian army was already talking to the Free Syrian army, sometimes directly by mobile phone. I was actually at one siege of a town that Nusra was in, as well as the Free Syrian army, and the Syrian commander next to me called up the Free Syrian army commander, the rebel commander, and said, look, why don't you get out now? And we won't kill any of you, and you won't kill any of us. And the Free Syrian army left. The Syrian officers would always say, we'd rather fight the FSA because they run away. The problem is Nusra and Daesh, night ISIS. Yet now today, as we report the results of the Turkish invasion of northern Syria, we're using a weird expression for what are called Turkey's Arab militia allies. I've heard this on CBC. Who are these strange Arab militia allies? We never heard about them before. They are called now the Syrian National Army, as opposed to the Syrian Arab Army, which is the official title of the regime's army, as opposed to the Assad government's version. Vincent Durak, a professor in Middle East politics in Dublin, even wrote last week that these Arab militia allies were a creation of Turkey. They were not. They are the wreckage of the Free Syrian Army. If you look at the footage, you can actually see the old Free Syrian Army flag, green, white, and black, on the film. 
They are the same Free Syrian Army rabble who went into Afrin a year ago and looted, along with Nusra, the Kurdish homes in the province of Afrin and the town of Afrin. So we've been playing the same kind of tricks with the so-called American-backed Syrian Democratic Forces. Sometimes I wonder how you can tolerate all these names. Even we in the Middle East have spinning heads trying to keep up with this. I've said before, you know, that the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces, are Kurds largely, with a few Syrian Christians. They have never been elected. They're not democratic. They weren't chosen by anyone, except the Americans and occasionally the Turks. And there's nothing democratic about the militia. And their force, Syrian Democratic Force, is only American air power. Yet they kept their title unscathed. Journalists talked about the Syrian Democratic Front. It was a quite a normal organization you must have heard about, or the SDF. But when the Turks invaded Syria to drive away from the Turkish-Syrian border, the same Syrian Democratic Forces, they became Kurdish forces. How you can possibly wade your way through this complexity, I don't know. It's difficult enough to actually be there and see it. An irony, which is either forgotten or simply unknown, is that when fighting began in Aleppo in 2012, the Kurds were helping the Free Syrian Army fight against the Syrian Army. But all this is too complex for journalists out there on the ground. So they give you a simple version, just as you hear about you know, the separation barrier rather than a wall, a settlement rather than a colony. And I'm afraid I get very tired of some of my colleagues when I see this. But the narrative of this war is being further skewed by our suspension of any critical understanding of Saudi Arabia's new role in the Syrian debacle. Deny and deny and deny is the Saudi policy when asked what assistance it gave to the anti-Assad Islamic rebel, Nusra rebels in Aleppo. I actually found in a basement of a Nusra office in Aleppo hundreds of mortars and all the documents that went with them sent by the arms manufacturer. The manufacturer was in Bosnia and the documents were signed off by a man called Ifet Kurnic. He was the chief production officer producing mortars at a factory at Novi Travnik in Bosnia. So I went to Bosnia and I tracked him down. He was cutting his lawn on a Sunday afternoon. And I walked up to him and put the paper down. I said, is that your signature? And he put his finger and said, that is my signature. And I said, who'd you send them to? He said, Riyadh, they went to Saudi Arabia. I said, how do you know? He said, the Saudi government minister came to the factory with three Saudi officers. I talked to them. The Saudis denied it and said it was a plot. Rubbish. It was all true. And how then did it reach Aleppo? Well, the Saudis must have sent it, presumably by Turkey. So here were the Saudis helping the Nusra, and no doubt the Americans knew about it, because NATO inspects all the weapons leaving this factory. NATO knows, and they knew they were going to Saudi Arabia. Don't tell me they didn't know they were going on to Syria. So we're all implicitly in this. But the Saudis are becoming more important to the Syrian regime. There is increasingly talk now that Saudi Arabia, not Qatar, will pay for the reconstruction, partly because it wants to control that land, but also because it would prefer to keep Iran out and that the Saudis pay for the reconstruction. The Syrians, whose principal policy at such times is to wait and wait and wait, they will have to decide how to play with their neighbours' ambitions and generosity. But Saudi interest in Syria is not merely conjecture. 
Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, we won't go into chopping up journalists at this point, remarked to Time magazine in August only last year that Bashar is going to stay. But I believe that Bashar's interest is not to let the Iranians do whatever they want to do. The Syrians and the Bahrainis are talking regularly now about the post-war Levant. The Emirates might even negotiate between the Saudis and the Syrians. The Gulf states are now saying that it was a mistake to suspend Syria's membership of the Arab League. In other words, Syria, with Russian encouragement, is steadily resuming the role it maintained before the 2011 revolt. This wasn't what we in the West imagined then, was it? When our ambassadors in Damascus were encouraging the Syrian street demonstrators to keep up their struggle against the regime and not under any circumstances to talk to Bashar al-Assad. But those were in the days before two crazed elements emerged to smash all our assumptions, sowing fear and distrust across the Middle East. The first element was Mr. Trump, and the second was ISIS. In his eloquent, awesome account of the destruction of the ISIS-held city of Mosul two years ago, the American journalist James Verini finds himself amid the wreckage of the city's university, talking to an academic outside what had been the English library. When the department had been closed down by ISIS, Daesh, Karam had been working on a paper about Marlowe's Dr. Faustus and had been fascinated by the deal that the ambitious doctor made with the devil. The idea is interesting, he told Verini, to see how he suffered, how he gave himself to the devil for a purpose and then he lost everything. He was not a happy man. Well, I guess that's jihadism for you. Always apocalyptic, selling your soul to Lucifer or to Abu Ibrahim Hashimi al-Qureshi, the guess-if-you-can prophet lineage tribal new leader of ISIS. Selling your soul to Lucifer is unlikely to provide you with much knowledge, but if devils don't take you off to hell, you have at least a reasonably good chance of dying very violently. Varini, in his book, They Will Have to Die Now, and I do recommend you read it, concludes that above all else, the Islamic State is very, very boring. It is also all-consuming. Anyone within its orbit, civilians, men and women living within that state, would conform more than that. Let me tell you how I know. With Syrian troops in the spring of 2017, just a few months after Varini had gone into the ruins of, Baghdad, of Mosul University, I um, entered the village of Deir Hafa, which is just east of Aleppo, only minutes after ISIS had fled. I went in with the first Syrian troops. A Syrian officer had been killed by mortar fire, but in the basement of what had been the local Islamic state court, painted black, of course, I discovered piles of documents, the records of hundreds of cases brought to the ISIS judges. The judges, by the way, were Egyptian, and they were brought by the people of Deir Hafa. Their contents proved what I had always suspected, that the locals, shopkeepers, merchants, farmers, angry male cousins and wives, all turned to the ISIS courts to attack and demean and sue their neighbours and relatives for domestic crimes, theft or espionage. They all betrayed each other, Syrian citizens in that village, to ISIS. As I emerged, the 
local village Mokhtars had arrived seeking reconciliation. And the Syrian soldiers said, oh, go to Damascus, get out of here. No one said anything. If they were handing themselves over to the mercy of a ruthless regime, they knew that what they had done under ISIS. And one extraordinary case was a cousin who said, he went to the court and he said, my cousin is pretending to go to the mosque in the evening and he's meeting a girl. And I have this information because another relative of mine rang me on a mobile phone from northern Lebanon. How's that for betrayal? I guess it must have happened in occupied Poland, German-occupied France, German-occupied Belgium, but on this scale? Like Faustus, these people had sold, sold their souls to the devil. For under ISIS rule, they had accepted the cult's justice, even though they knew that a few metres from Der Hatha's Islamic court, there stood several grim iron crossbeams, again painted black, upon which some of the court's victims had been crucified. I walked across the iron sheeting of this place and it grumbled under my feet. See, see where Christ's blood streams in the firmament, Dr. Faustus cries as he is dragged off to hell, seeking just half a drop to spare him. He even begged mercy from Lucifer. The people of Der Hafa, they did the same, didn't they? They were Sunni Muslims, but they might well have understood Maro. Dr. Faustus could expect no justice from the devil, but they did. It's not surprising, however, that justice in that most unjust of worlds, which we call the Middle East, has an obsessive quality about it. You're listening to Robert Fisk on Chaos in the Middle East. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program by calling 1-800-444-197. That's 1-800-444-197. Seven, seven. Or you can order online alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. I'm always enraged when Westerners announce in the Arab world that life is cheap. It's not. Death is cheap. Life is as precious to Muslims or Christians or Jews in the region in which I live as it is in Paris, London or Toronto. It is death which is cheap. Invasion, occupation and dictatorial suppression has made it so. Thus, justice and death and cruel bargains with the devil have become part of the narrative of this pitiful, deeply sorrowful place in which I work. After the Israeli army retreated from the Lebanese city of Sidon in 1985, I was driving north to Beirut when a Hezbollah fighter on the side of the coast road waved me down. Could I give him a lift north? Sure, jump in, I said. He put his rifle on the back seat and sat in the passenger seat beside me. And the usual exchanges began. Where did I come from? What was my name? Which Lebanese town did he come from? His family name? How many brothers and sisters? You know the story. Then he meekly asked me the question which I knew was coming. Did the foreigner, did Mr. Robert believe in God? This was a tough one for the liberal, secular, arrogant, Western-educated Mr. Robert, driving his grey Volkswagen Golf up to Beirut. So as usual, I ducked the question. We journalists are very good. You know, we think people are going to answer our questions. I've long ago realised that the trick is not to answer the question that you ask, but answer another one. So Mr. Robert asks the Hezbollah man if he believed in life after death. 
Muslims and Christians who are believers, and I still cringe at the word, but I cringe even more at faith-based, which is a phrase used by British clergymen. These believers, we share, or rather used to share, a pretty similar view of what happens when you die. The day of judgment, heaven or hell. The Muslims, rather attractively, don't believe in purgatory. So while we sit on plastic chairs, while some saint comes and says, just, you know, fucking Hamsi Daya, just five minutes, Mr. Robert, or just another hundred years, or can you just wait another thousand years? The Muslims go straight through. In any event, the young Hezbollah man, more anxious to, to indulge in theology, I suspect, than fighting the uh, Israeli army, announced that he could prove that there was an afterlife. So as I drove along to Beirut, I said, go ahead. Do you believe in justice, he asked me. Of course, said Mr. Robert. And do you believe there is justice on earth? Mr. Robert had no trouble with that. No, absolutely not. The Hezbollah man's face lit up. Exactly, he exclaimed. So if there is justice, but justice does not exist on earth, it must exist in heaven. Therefore, there is an afterlife. I will leave you, ladies and gentlemen, to ponder this ecclesiastical argument, arch-delivered by a young man who may in succeeding years have found out for himself. As a correspondent who at least once a year, and sometimes many times a year, places himself at risk of sudden and murderous death in Middle East conflicts, I don't spend much time pondering these matters. Nor, I imagine, do those of our profession who are killed in the line of journalistic duty though they set off on their last story, obviously hoping to live. Whether they're shot by the Syrian army or whether they're killed by the Israeli army or the Egyptian army, which has all happened in recent years, I think they are very brave when they set off on that journey for they do not know what is to happen. A few of them I have known. They risked all to tell of others' suffering. This was more important to them than the risks. Brave people all. Journalism has its martyrs too. But when you know, yes, how cheap death is, you don't spend a lot of time contemplating heaven or hell. You try to stay alive. That is the one and only all-consuming objective when we journalists go to war. Every year when I return to Ireland for Christmas, I say to myself, thanks be to God, I made it through another year, untouched, still in one piece. And always I say how lucky I am. I have survived another 12 months. And thus the great matter of eventual death is not, as it might be for others of my age, very pressing. Occasionally, like so many of my colleagues, I find myself so close to that chap with the scythe that I'm almost too frightened to write. Winston Churchill once exclaimed quite correctly that there is nothing in life so exhilarating as to be shot at without effect. <laughs> he was right, by the way. After great danger comes the sheer comical, impossible, ridiculous delight of meeting old friends, going out to dinner, planning the next day's adventures. Ed Cody, an American colleague of mine who was working for the AP and went on to the Washington Post during the early stages of the Lebanese Civil War, said that the fun of journalism in the Middle East is that every day you could have a new adventure. I'm not sure he'd say that today. The word, though, is well chosen, for it represents, I suspect, a method by which we might offset, degrade in value, the dark and terrible fate which might indeed await us on our next day's adventure. 
Ed was in my car when we drove down to the coastal town of Damour during an Israeli air raid on a neighbouring Palestinian guerrilla base. A jet passed very low, scarcely 500 metres from us, and dropped its bomb on the town. A Palestinian anti-aircraft gun, World War II vintage, thus useless, was being fired from a truck right beside our moving car, its empty cartridge cases bouncing off my windscreen. And I still remember the extraordinary thought that suffused my mind, presumably to stop myself panicking. Well, I said to myself, the worst that can happen is we get killed. <laughs> Which, of course, is how to get yourself killed. I have banished that kind of conjecture from my mind ever since, but you cannot escape it altogether. I was in Lebanon one winter when a journalist called me from London and told me she'd been offered an assignment to Baghdad because it was about to be bombed by the Americans. Did I think it wise, she asked me, for her to report from Iraq? This was awful. If I said yes and she was killed, I'm to blame. But if I said no, I would be harming her career, her own free choice to be a journalist in a war, and a spoil sport at the very least. So I said this question was hers and hers only to decide. But I added that should, she should remember one thing if she set off to Iraq. She was going there to report, not to die. And off she went to Baghdad, reported brilliantly, and happily survived. I once asked the great Lebanese historian and speaker of ancient Hebrew, Kamal Salibi, an old and trusted friend, if he believed in life after death. He always delivered his lectures with the frightening articulation of a clergyman, high-pitched voice, unanswerable. There is nothing, he replied to me. It is the end. We are dust. He died eight years ago, a devout Protestant to the end, and one of the most secular academics I've ever met in the Middle East. Mercifully, he just missed the satanic birth of Isis. But for some years, he exiled himself from Beirut because he feared for his life. Someone had reminded the Lebanese that Salibi, his name, was Arabic for crusader. Oddly, I think it was the advent of the ISIS cult which redirected our political narrative back to the subject of death. Not only was ISIS cruel and boring, but it was based upon the absolute threat of a terrible end to life. Its pornographic film of decapitationists, drownings, mass executioners, slow immolation by fire represented more than a nightmare, even for those who lived thousands of miles like you from the Middle East. It was an instrument of death, just like the metal tools which the torturer in the Middle Ages would show to the crowds before he hanged, drew and quartered his victims. It presented us, did Isis, with the intimacy of suffering, one of the most frightening elements to the ISIS psyche of death was that it was also largely unemotional. Even in its house magazine, ISIS excused its rape and slavery of Yazidi women with a brief and utterly irrelevant quotation from the Quran. There was no justification, no argument, no excuse for these crimes. It was as if ISIS was a machine. Its members were and are vicious automatons. They have the emotions of an anti-aircraft missile or a drone. And here we touch rather untidily, do we not? Indeed, perhaps with deep concern upon our own technology of death. The more detached we are from the act of killing, the easier it is to kill. When US bomber pilots firebombed Tokyo in the Second World War, the only thing that upset them was that even though they were in the air, 
they could smell roasting flesh. That we produced ISIS through the barbarity of our outrageous invasion of Iraq in 2003 becomes more evident to me by the month. We created this monstrous deviation from humanity. Before the Anglo-US invasion was a year old, I found piles of cassette tapes on sale outside a mosque in the Iraqi city of Fallujah. I bought several of them and took them back to my hotel in Baghdad. They showed dozens of scenes, all real, most of them apparently of Russian soldiers captured by Islamist militants in Chechnya. Each soldier was led into a room. A masked or hooded Islamist stood behind him. The man then drew his knife across the soldier's throat. The man, the soldier, tried to cope with the pain and then his head was cut off. I realised at once that these were teaching aids. Someone had arranged for these edited tapes, nothing was spared the viewer, in order to teach the fighters of Fallujah to be butchers, which is what ISIS became. Amazingly, ISIS still had its own fantasies about an Islamic state. It had its own police force. It even set up its own currency. It minted coins. The idea was that people would believe in the state if they had their money. But there was a problem. The people under ISIS rule may have used the courts to betray each other, but they preferred the US dollar. <laughs> even more to the point, the ISIS fighters preferred the US dollar. And that was what they were paid for. These were museum pieces, as fake as any kind of ISIS theology. I think they learned, basically, from the massacres we perpetrated, the systematic routine tortures we inflicted in Abu Ghraib, which, by the way, involved rape as well as humiliation, and the CIA's black centres. We like to think that anger or insane fury drives us to murder most foul, but this is not so. It is routine, the sheer dull insensitivity towards pain or death which drives the ISIS machine or the military machine. We are no longer killed. We are not executed. We are mechanically destroyed because we ceased to be humans to our murderers long before we died. There's a very few chilling moments in that film of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey when the HAL 9000 commuter... How many people have seen 2001? Very good. Well, you remember the HAL 9000 computer decides to murder the three hibernating crew members on the Jupiter mission. The spacecraft is Discovery 1. And the computer warns that HAL is turning off their life systems. Life functions critical, appears on the screen. And a warning klaxon sounds. Then comes the literal killer. Life functions terminated. I once covered a court series in France in which which it began when um, a French couple of Algerian origin, of course, noted, went to the police and said, our daughter's been missing for several days. We fear she's gone to, uh, to Syria. And I went to France and I watched this court case. But as the court case followed it, they had to say, well, what happened to the daughter? And the police visited the house and looked up the Facebook pages of the young girl. One of them was all about school friends, music, parties. The other had a picture of Aleppo in ruins saying, Bismillah, Allah, I want to help the children and the women of Aleppo. And the police, the French police kept saying, which is the real Facebook? And I wrote, they both were, because ISIS goes for the child. That's how you radicalise people. A French judge 
less than a year ago, noted in a court case where two Frenchmen who had returned from ISIS were on trial. They were 19 or 20, excuse me. In the intermission of the court, the two men asked them mummies to go and get them their favorite sweets that they enjoyed at school. You see, they had been re-infantilized. All the letters, remember, at the beginning came from young women writing back to families in Britain that, oh, in Raqqa, you can buy our favorite chocolates. And I think what ISIS did, it switched people back to infancy when we do not know the difference between bad and good, between good and evil. I think it's the re-infantilization of human beings that ISIS perfected, and that is how people were, quote, radicalized. Not through fear or revenge, but a desire to go back to the start. I guess it's perfectly reasonable for those living in the Shakespearean world of betrayal, suffering and death that the people of the Middle East should take the finality of life more seriously than we do in the West. In the Arab world, by the way, you do not pass away or pass, as that horrible new expression goes, and you use it here, I know. You die or you're martyred and that's it. The afterlife is not always accepted without argument. Years ago, I was returning from a story in the Bekaa Valley in eastern Lebanon over the snow-covered Sanin Heights back to Beirut. My Sunni driver, Abed, sat next to me and an old Shiite friend, Ahmad, sat in the back. The snow was piled high on each side of the highway. We had fitted good old-fashioned chains to the tyres to make sure we did not plunge into the ravines and find out the answer to the ultimate question. The sky was a deep, dark blue, the trees all skeletons with a harsh beauty, which we all understood. It seemed an interesting moment to raise the big question with my friends. Surely, I said to them, we could not see this snow and sky and speak in the language of angels just because two gas clouds bumped together five billion years ago. Abed, who always called me Habibi, best, I suppose the best translation in this context would be mate, He said, all I know about death, Habibi, is that we go and the world goes on without us. Poor Ahmad in the back, he didn't know. He said, I just don't know, Robert. Years later, I had completed a lecture in Belfast to a largely Catholic audience of adults and pupils at the Clonard Monastery in the Falls Road. A schoolgirl actually asked me whether the Middle East would be a better place if there was more religion there. (laughs) No, I shouted out, please, no not without a grimace of disbelief, less religion, please. Then I was Hezbollah-like, asked if I believed in God. Behind me sat a very elderly Catholic priest who, so far as I remember, was in his 90s, so he would be 120. He's already found out that there's a life after death. So I told my audience of the conversation with Abed and I'm mad on the mountains of Lebanon, and I repeated my belief that a collision of gas clouds in outer space could not have brought about our lives. And the very old priest tapped me three times on the back of my shoulder. And to this day, I don't know whether he was saying, not bad, or good try, or you're getting there. At school, I learned to play the violin and played, alas, badly. But I do have a clear memory of occasions when I managed a very short section of a classical score quite well. And there was something quite ethereal playing music. Not my poor interpretation, but the very notes seemed to have about them something which was quite outside oneself. Who, I asked myself, invented the perfect fifth in music? We didn't. Not us humans, surely. And I was much enthralled when I read the words of the American cellist and composer Michael Fitzpatrick, 
who wrote that when he played music, he felt a divine presence and experienced a direct revelation of God. It is a very mystical experience, he said, I hear it turn into sound. When he was 17, Fitzpatrick was playing a cello concerto by the French 19th century composer Edward Lalo. And he was to write that this experience in front of a concert or audience gave him the sense that I have been touched by God and given a specific gift through music. But if God exists, and I remain a journalist rather than a believer, in fact, I rather think that journalism is my religion, I ask myself, well, does this resolve problems which my Hezbollah travelling companion thought he could answer? On reflection, I've always thought, as I say, that the Muslim afterlife was more pleasurable than the Christian version. Born an English Protestant, I had the impression from childhood that heaven consisted of vast, well-trimmed lawns over which we dead walked in long white robes while angels played bark oratorios from the tops of tall trees. Dull stuff. Whereas the Muslim heaven, as we're all told, there are the virgins, the rivers of honey, and the seemed always to me to be frankly a lot more desirable. <laughs> the virgins and the rivers of honey are of course symbols of heaven, they're not meant literally, although they may have been taken as such by Isis on many occasions. On assignment in Northern Ireland to compare the confessionalism of the Middle East with the sectarianism of Belfast, both the direct result of Western colonial rule, I might add, Remember, it was in the 17 months that followed the First World War that we drew the frontiers of Northern Ireland, Yugoslavia, and most of the Middle East. Anyway, I called up the Reverend Ian Paisley and told him I wanted to discuss heaven. This is the Paisley you all know who ranted against the Catholic faith. Paisley and I always got on well, even though he knew my views. He used to ask me about Christian holy sites in Lebanon and Palestine and Israel. And when I rang him, the familiar Paisley roar of laughter came down the telephone line when I revealed what I wanted to talk about. Heaven, Dr Paisley. But he met me at Stormont, the Northern Ireland Parliament that is now empty, of course, and listened with great concentration when I explained to him that the Muslim afterlife seemed a lot more attractive than the Christian version or the Paisley version. He shook his head. Robert, Robert, Paisley replied with impatience. You don't know your scriptures. And he took from his inside jacket pocket a small, slim volume with a red leather cover finished in gold. Revelations 21.2, he said, opening the passage. And, Qua and Paisley quaffed to me thus. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And that was Paisley on immortality. When my mother was dying more than a decade ago, she suffered from Parkinson's, I sat beside her bed and was seized with an idea which I tried to communicate to her. All I can remember now is that I wanted to tell her that we don't really die, that, and I do not recall now what my explanation would have been for this conviction. Worse still, I did, I did tell her that we humans did not die, but speaking to her seconds only before she actually died, I could not then remember the end of my sentence. Did my mum... If she was conscious of my words, say to herself, well, go on then, Bob, give us the reason. When I returned to Beirut, I told this story rather sadly to Tariq Halidi, the man who bravely held that conference about should Islam have a Martin Luther. And I spoke to him of my remorse that I never finished my sentence to my mum, that all I could say was that we didn't really die, and then I stopped. To which Tariq replied to me, 
Well, Roberto, what you did manage to say wasn't bad at all. Perhaps the Sufi notion that dying is a mere transition, a stage in life rather than the end, a return to where we came from, was what I was somehow trying to explain to my mother. The 13th century Persian poet and theologian Rumi displays this belief in a poem called On the Day I Die. On the day I die, when I'm being carried toward the grave, don't weep, don't say he's gone, he's gone. Death has nothing to do with going away. The sun sets and the moon sets, but they're not gone. Death is a coming together. The tomb looks like a prison, but it's really released into union. Your mouth closes here and immediately opens with a shout of joy there. But I fear we must return to Faustus. For most people, I'm sorry to say, one day or another, they sell themselves to the devil, whether it be in our prisons, in the ISIS cauldron, in the black-painted courthouse of Del Hafa. And with the arms that we, Americans, Russians, British, sell to the murderous dictators who suppress and torture their people, the tyrants of the region maintain their personal ownership of their countrymen's lives. The Middle East is a place of betrayed souls, of justice sought but unfulfilled, of brutality most vile, often created by us and engendered by us in the people who live in these vast lands. They do not deserve it. The Muslims, Christians and Jews of the Arab world, they have done nothing to earn so terrible a reward. The mystery to me, your typical Western cynic, educated perhaps, but inexperienced in such oppression, is that almost all these people still believe in God and for the most part in an afterlife. They still demand justice, still remain largely fearless in the face of death. I always say these are not our people and these are not our lands, but their courage, or is it faith, must stand out in such a degree that we in the West recognize it and say, Faustus be damned. Thank you for your patience. That was Robert Fisk on Chaos in the Middle East. He's the renowned Middle East correspondent for The Independent. He spoke at the Bloor Street United Church in Toronto in November 2019. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. Now in its 34th year, we are independent and are supported solely by individuals just like you. Every week, we feature progressive voices rarely heard in the corporate media. And we have a special series of programs on the Middle East, as well as two books I did with Edward Said, The Pen and the Sword, and Culture and Resistance. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s, or written transcripts of today's program, Robert Fisk on Chaos in the Middle East, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order on our website, alternativeradio.org. Special thanks to Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with Trio Gibran performing Majaz. Mm-hmm.
Fui na lepšie Jenny Noc, CJSW 90.9 FM. Na zavše radio, radio na zavše. Wow! predisposed to eating off floors no wait i take that back i was more like an ocean stuck inside hospital corridors my condition in general despite what they say improves so i could care less on a night like this i'm on the lookout for anything that moves crimson tide Thank you. 